You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. We are continuing our series through Romans 5 through 8, and in a sense, starting on Romans 5 through 8, because if you were here last night or last week, you remember that we just kind of surveyed Romans 1 through 4 and what it talks about. We talked about uh, the, the wrath of God against our sin, uh, both the sin of good people and the sin of bad people. Uh, everybody is on the same page when it comes to God, right? Guilty. But in Christ, who gives us his life uh, and who, for, through his death, uh, takes our sin on himself, Uh, The verdict is spoken about us at the beginning of the Christian life, not guilty. And what Paul does in this passage in Romans chapter 5, 1 through through 11, uh, is he kind of teases out some of the implications of that. If this is true, if Jesus' death really has paid for all of our sins and credited us with all of his goodness, so what? What difference can that make? What difference should that make in our day-to-day lives? Uh, another way to talk about what Paul is doing in this passage uh, is, is kind of asking the question, how do we know that God loves us, right? Do we just have to take him at his word that he loves us and we just have to trust him? Or is there maybe something more? And I, was, I want to suggest tonight that there is. This passage kind of breaks down into two sections that you can see on your outline. God shows his love for us because he rescues us, and even after rescuing us, he provides for us. So God proves his love for us in what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us and provide for us. So that's where we're going tonight as we walk through uh, these 11 verses at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. But let me read it for us, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray, and we'll talk about what that means. Father, as always, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. As we look at this passage, Father, uh, it's so clear what you've done to bring us back to yourself and the love that you continue to pour on us uh, through your gifts. I pray that you would help us to see those tonight uh, and to enjoy them, to believe that they're ours, and to use them. 
Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so first, maybe you're wondering, you know, you're looking at this outline, and you're saying, okay, Romans 5, 1 through 11. His first point is verse 6. Um, does Andrew know how numbers work? I assure you that I do. I have an engineering degree from uh, North Carolina State University, uh, and it's not been that long ago. I still know how numbers work. Uh, but one of the things that Paul does uh, one of the ways that uh, it, it can be helpful to read Paul's letters is he uses all kinds of logical connectors all over the place. If you remember last week, uh, we looked at Romans 5.1, which starts with therefore. When you see a therefore, you're supposed to look at what it's there for, right? You look at what's come before to answer the question like, okay, what's the connection to what he's talking about now? Well, verse 6 starts with the word for, or you could say because, and that's the opposite of therefore, Right? And so whatever Paul says in verses 1 through 5 is built on what comes before and what comes after. Right? So in a sense, Paul has explored and defined what justification by grace is. And then in verses 1 through 5, he gives some implications, some so what about that. And then because it's so important, so fundamental for the Christian life, he comes back to justification in verses 6 through 11. So we're going to be a little repetitive tonight. Because Paul is a little bit repetitive in this passage, because he wants us to have settled so deeply this question of what is justification? What does it mean that we have been saved? And Paul describes what it means that we have been saved by pointing out these three kind of conditions that we found ourselves in, or that God found us in, when he rescued us. While we were weak, while we were sinners, and while we were enemies. First, God rescued us while we were weak. This is verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, the Christian life is maybe best described as growing in the knowledge of our weakness, which is not a positive message that we like to hear, right? Like, come to Jesus. He loves you because you're so weak. But that's the truth. One of the ways that Jesus himself talked about this was in the, the book of Luke. He tells a story called the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Pharisees in Jesus' day were the best of the best, right? They were the people that knew the Bible really well. They were the people that took it really seriously, that tried to obey it exactingly, right? Down to the letter, down to the comma, down to the dot over the I. And so this Pharisee comes to the temple, he comes to worship, and he starts to pray, and he says, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then we get his resume, right? I tithe a portion of all that I get. I pray. I do all these good things. I know your law. And he walks away from the temple self-satisfied, right? Feeling good about himself because he's looking at all of the things that he does. Well, then a tax collector comes, a Jewish tax collector. And in Jesus' day, Jewish tax collectors were the worst of the worst because they were collecting taxes for the Romans who were occupying Israel. So this Jewish tax collector is collecting taxes from his ethnic brothers and sisters to give it to an occupying army so that they can make money off of the Israelites. And this tax collector comes to the temple, and he won't even lift up his eyes, but he just looks at the ground, and he beats his chest, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't cite any works, he doesn't have any. He doesn't point to any goodness because he knows none is in there. 
Right? He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' verdict about this story is he says the tax collector gets it right. right. He's the one who goes away in a right relationship with me. He goes away justified because he's not leaning on what he has. He's leaning on me. Weakness is kind of the default position of the Christian life. This is what Jesus assumes when he teaches and when he calls us to faith in him. Right? He tells us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Right? If you're too weak to pick up your burden, come to me and I will give you rest. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? Those who don't have any righteousness in themselves and are too weak to produce any. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Weakness is the default position of the Christian life. It is what is true of us when it comes to us serving God, when it comes to us producing any kind of saving good, when it comes to us like following him with our whole lives. What we do is we stumble. Yes, we follow him, but we do it in fits and starts, and we do it stumbling like a toddler learning how to walk. But our tendency is to say, I don't like that. Jesus must be embarrassed by that. Let me get it together so that I can come to Jesus. Right? Let me come with something to bring. Right? Some, some goodness to point to, some act of, of you know, like graciousness or charity or kindness, some service that I've done. Right? Let me come with my perfect record of quiet times. Right? We do this with the word, with prayer, with Christian community, and, and we say, man, how can I come to the Bible after the week that I've had? Right? Why would God hear my prayers right now after I've just done this thing to a friend? How can I come and eat the bread and drink the wine at communion after the week that I've lived? And that gets it backwards. Right? Jesus does not say, get your act together and come follow me. He says, come follow me, and I will change you. Right? Weakness is the default position of the Christian life. And these gifts of God, his word, prayer, invitation to the table, Christian community, they are not rewards for a life well-lived. The gifts of God are, are strength for the journey. Right? They're blessings that he gives so that we might follow him. Right? We, we come to the Bible not because we've been so good, but because we're so desperately in need of God's wisdom. We come to prayer not because we're so worthy of coming into the throne room of grace, but because we're so desperately in need of help. How do you know your Father loves you? While we were weak, Christ died for us. But not just while we were weak, while we were sinners. This is what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. There may be for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Weakness emphasizes our inability, right? Like, I'm, I'm not strong enough to save myself. I'm not strong enough to produce any spiritual good. Sinfulness emphasizes my guilt, Right? Not only am I not strong enough to do the good that I ought to do, but I've actively done things that I shouldn't have done. You may, maybe think about it like this. Uh, say you're an English major, 
uh, and you register for your classes in the next couple days or couple weeks based on this like alchemy of how many credit hours you have and however they figure out who gets to register when. You set your schedule and it's all good, right? You're taking Lewis and Tolkien, you're taking some kind of like ancient English Canterbury tales or something like that. You got a fun PE in there and you go home for the summer and you come back and you have an email from your advisor informing you that you've been registered for Organic Chemistry 2 because they've changed the degree requirements and now for some reason, Organic Chemistry 2 is part of the requirements to get an English degree. And the new professor emails you and he gives you the syllabus and you see that on the first day of class, you're gonna have a test because he wants to know like how well everybody knows organic chemistry so that he can see how much he needs to review or if he can just get right into whatever they talk about in organic chemistry too. That was not my engineering field. Uh, mechanical, stuff that moves, not chemistry, stuff you can't see. Um, weakness is the fact that I don't know anything about organic chemistry. Right? And, and Jesus meeting us in our weakness would be as if the professor came and for like 48 hours gave you a crash course in chemistry one, right? organic chemistry one, and, and taught you everything you needed to know for the test. Right? That's weakness. Sin is if instead you showed up to the test with an answer key written on your hand and took the whole thing and knocked it out of the park. And the professor walked by and saw you copying on your paper right? and caught you in your sin and said, it's okay, Like I will take whatever punishment you deserve for this um, and give you the grade that you need. Okay, it's a weird example, but that's the difference between our weakness and our sin. Our weakness is our inability to do anything good, and our sin is the, the act of evil that we've done. But God says, Paul says, that in our sin is when Jesus came and saved us. As Jesus said to the disciples, I, I've come not to say, it's not the sick who need a doctor, or it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But we're so quick to hide our sin. We're so quick to excuse our sin and try and set it aside and say, I, I'm not as bad as all that, or there are extenuating circumstances that you don't, just don't understand. But Jesus moves towards us because we are weak and sinful. Our weakness and our sinfulness is what draws Jesus to us because he is the solution for those things. And so when we hide our sin or we try to lessen our sin, what we're really doing is hiding from ourselves our need for someone like Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. So how do we know that God loves us, that our Father loves us? Because Christ died for us while we were sinners. Christ died for us while we were weak, while we were sinners, and while we were enemies. All right, in the, the last couple verses of this passage, in 10 and 11, Paul starts talking about this thing called reconciliation. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a big word for people being friends again, right? People having a relationship restored. And what Paul is saying and reminding us of is that in the fall, Adam and in him, all mankind lost our communion with God. 
right? And, and all of a sudden we're subject to his wrath and curse because of our sin. But now, because of what Christ has done in the new Adam, we're restored to God. We've been reconciled. The, the relationship has been repaired. In other words, in our weakness and in our sin, Christ comes as our death substitute. Because we've incurred the wrath of God for sin and we're under like his divine displeasure. But Christ stands in front of us and says, let their punishment fall on me. And then Paul says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And not just that, we will be saved by his life. We don't just have a death substitute. We have a life substitute. Jesus takes all of his goodness, the perfect life that he lived, and he, and he puts it on us. And he tells the Father, consider them as having lived my life. And welcome them and restore them to a right relationship with you. Paul explores all these different things that God has done in saving us. Yes, he's rescued us, but it's not just this kind of nebulous rescue, right? Not just this formless salvation, but God has come and he has met our deficiencies and our weakness and in our sin and in our alienation from him. And again, this is the default position of the Christian life. We relate to God through need. We relate to God through weakness. It's our weakness that draws Christ towards us, and in our weakness, we're finally able to receive the gifts of God because we stop, stop trying to produce them on our own. Again, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So how do we know that our Father loves us? Because he's brought us back to himself and restored the relationship that was broken. God proves his love for us in rescuing us in our weakness and in our sin and while we were enemies. And then God proves his love for us, not just by providing that salvation in Christ, but in providing all these other benefits that come along with us. Having rescued us, having justified us, God now provides us with blessings. He provides us with peace, he provides us with grace, and he provides us with joy. First, we have peace with God. And we talked about this again last week, that it's not an invitation from Paul. It's information, right? Paul's not saying because of what Jesus has done, if you're in him, you can have peace with God. No, he's saying because of what Jesus has done, if you're in him, you have peace with God. It's a fact. It's a right. But don't we kind of live like it's an invitation, Right? Like the, the peace that we can enjoy with God is kind of up to us to uphold our end of the bargain. Right? As if that peace is something we need to produce and contribute to. Right? Once I get this quiet time habit down, then I'll have peace with God. Once I start being the kind of sister or brother or friend or roommate that I know I'm supposed to be, then I will feel at peace with God. Once I feel like my goodness outweighs my sinful tendencies just kind of in general, then I'll have peace with God. Or maybe specifically, once I stop struggling with that sin, then I'll have peace with God. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, if you are in Christ, you have peace with God. There is no more wrath left, only fatherly care and affection. And our efforts to earn that peace flip the script and get it backwards. Right? Because if I base my peace with God on how I'm doing, 
my experience of the Christian life is going to be like this roller coaster that just goes up and down and honestly probably goes down a lot more than it goes up, right? If my peace with God is based on my goodness or performance, right, then, then any harsh word towards my wife, any impatience towards my kids, any like shading of the truth, any deficiency, any just like apathy towards the word and saying like, I'd rather just watch a movie than read my Bible. Like any of that will wreck my joy in the Christian life, right? But if I receive the peace of God as a gift, not because of what I've done, but because of what has been done on my behalf, then I can actually rest. Then I'm actually freed to, to do those things, like have a devotional life and, and to seek to live rightly with my wife and kids and staff and, and friends and all of you guys, right? And I can actually work on my sin and pursue holiness, but with the right frame of mind, right? If I start from a place of I have peace with God, then I'm freed and enabled to do all those other things, right? So, so often we approach God in the word and prayer to, to make ourselves feel at peace. And so it's, it's this weird, like, selfish turn that we come to God not for himself, but for what he provides to us. But if we recognize that we have peace, then we go to God in the word and prayer not to get peace, but to enjoy it. Right? We seek to live rightly with one another, not to feel at peace with God, but because God has reconciled us to himself, now we can be reconciled to one another. And we fight against sin, not because it disqualifies us from grace, but because it disrupts our enjoyment of God's grace. But that peace that we were made for, that peace that we'll enjoy forever, is ours now in Jesus Christ. So how do you know that your Father loves you? He's given you his peace. Second, he's given us his grace. Look at verse 2. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word access, um, we, it's easy to read that and feel like it's, it's something that we have a right to because we've done the work or earned it. It's like, I, I think you guys have like some kind of key fob or something that gets you into your dorms, right? It gives you access to Blue Ridge or Judicola or whichever one is on fire all the time. Like, you're, like you pay your dues, right? You pay your rent and your tuition and you, you uphold the code of student conduct and you get access to your dorm, right? You, you do something and you're given access. Uh, the word here in Romans, though, doesn't have that feel. It has the, more the feel of like an introduction. Uh, and, and here's what I mean by that. Before I moved up here and started doing RUF, uh, I was an assistant pastor at a church in Hilton Head, and one of my favorite things that I did there uh, as a pastor was basically bagels and books, but instead of college students, it was a bunch of old men, uh, and it was really, really fun. And by old, like I was in my late 20s, so that just means like people with kids in high school, right? Um, and we would read about four books a year, you know, we'd do something about every quarter, and we'd pick a book together, read it over a couple months, and then get together and chat about it in somebody's backyard, around a fire, or in their living room. And we'd done this two or three times, and we were finishing a meeting, and we said, okay, what book are we going to read next? And we picked the book, and then it was like, okay, where are we going to meet next time? Because we would rotate whose house we met at. And somebody spoke up and was like, what if we did it 
at, at the men's locker room in my country club. And everybody was like, oh, that sounds great. And I was like, what? Because I've been in men's locker rooms and they're not a place that I wanna sit and have a two hour conversation about a book. But everybody else seemed into it. I was scared of this guy. So I was like, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, three months later, the day for uh, this, this book discussion club comes and I drive to Sea Pines Country Club uh, on Hilton Head Island, and it's this giant building that's got like the restaurant on the bottom and the clubhouse and offices and the locker rooms are upstairs. And I park and I walk up to the front doors, which are enormous, and I like yank the thing open and there's a guy standing inside, very well-dressed, whose job is to welcome people to this building and get them where they need to go. And the guy says, welcome, sir. How can I help you? I was like, I'm looking for the locker room? He's like, ah, you're with the Luther party. And I was like, yes, Steve Luther said, we're going to follow me. And I'm like muttering and stumbling, and he's very professional, and walks me down this hallway and up this giant flight of stairs. And down at the end of the hallway is this door that has this plaque that says men's locker room, right? It's this big, thick, looks like oak or something. It's got this big, ornate handle on it. And he opens the door and he says, enjoy your evening, sir. And I walk in and I have never been in a nicer room than what I walked into, right? Like if you're picturing a locker room, picture the opposite, right? Like hardwood floors, the deepest leather couches that you can imagine. There's like a box of cigars on a table by the side. Not that anybody had brought, just like there for us. Um, and like wood paneling and rich mahogany and velvet, like anything you could imagine, this room was exquisite. And we went out onto the balcony and we sat around a fire pit and we smoked cigars and we watched people tee off and we talked about like some old theology book. And there is nothing about 28-year-old Andrew Shank or a pastor's salary that should have landed me in that room. But because I knew Steve Luther and Joe Oshevsky, and because they belonged, they gave me access, right? They brought me in and said, you don't deserve, they didn't say this to me, but like, you don't deserve to be here, but we're going to bring you in here and sit you down and just stay a while. That's the access that Paul is talking about here, right? We've been given access into grace. Christ has ushered us in and said, I have made all of the preparations. I've done everything that needs to happen so that you can sit and rest in me, right? Actually, Paul says, stand, right? Not in one day, out the next, but I have planted you in my grace and you will not be moved. How do you know that your father loves you? He's given you his grace. And finally, we know that our Father loves us because he's given us joy. In verse, at the end of verse 2, uh, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in the Bible is not like we generally use it. We generally use hope as a synonym for wish, right? Like, I hope it doesn't rain this weekend. Hope in the Bible is a, an eager and confident expectation because it's based on God's character and his promises, and because he is sure, so is our hope. So we await with eager and confident expectation the glory of God, right? The assurance that one day all things will be made new. The creation will stop groaning, and so will we. 
that his beauty will be fully revealed for all to see, and that we'll be in his presence without any kind of fear or shame or doubt anymore. If you're in Christ, that's your hope. But, Paul goes on, and he says, not only that, but look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And all of us go, like, wait. Our sufferings? And the Romans go, wait. Our sufferings? Because Rome, notoriously, was not kind to Christians. And this world, notoriously, is not kind to Christians. As soon as Paul says that we rejoice in our sufferings, eyebrows go up and confusion enters in. Right? Like, I thought we looked forward to a day when suffering would end. Right? When there would be no more tears or pain or reason for it to exist at all. So why would we rejoice in something that's not going to be around very much longer? A couple observations that I think will help with that. First, the word that Paul uses for suffering here isn't like over-the-top persecution. Right? He's not talking about Christians being killed in the Colosseum. Uh, it's the same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28. He says, If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Right? Or if we use the same word from Romans 5, those who marry will have sufferings. Right? Paul's a fan of marriage. He thinks it's a good thing. He thinks it's a gift from God. And so this is not like the over-the-top, senseless persecution that comes on Christians. This is like, this is life in a fallen world. This is suffering because we have a different confession, because we seek to live with integrity, right? We suffer as we follow a king who rules this world, but has not yet returned it to claim it all as his own, right? This kind of suffering is just the tension and difficulty that we feel in following Christ in a world oriented against him. This is the suffering that you endure in your classes, where a professor is saying something that you know goes against your confession and what the Word of God says. This is the suffering and the discomfort and the tension that you feel in your friend groups when they're inviting you to do something that your conscience is screaming at you not to do. Right? This is the suffering of us seeking to, to live as followers of Jesus in a world that thinks that is ridiculous. Right? So that's the suffering that Paul is talking about. But what's the result of this suffering? Why would we rejoice in suffering? Because we know what it produces. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because again, it's based on who God is, and it comes to us through his Spirit. The result of our suffering, the result of this tension of living as followers of Jesus in a world that is oriented against him, is simply maturity. And as Christians grow and are conformed to the image of the one who has saved us, we rejoice in that. As Paul says, all these little inconveniences and difficulties, God uses them to push us towards maturity. I mean, like, this is what I do with my kids, right? I was, I was observing this the other day, like, I put myself and my youngest daughter, Emmeline, who's three, through the nightly torture of putting on her pajamas. She is awful at putting on pants. It's like so comedic and so bad, and it takes so long. 
what I do is I say, Emmeline, it's time to get ready for bed. We need to put on our pajamas. Go pick out some pajamas. And she toddles over to her drawer, and she picks out some pajamas, and they never match, which is fine because she's asleep. Who cares? And she'll bring them over to me, and I will lay her pants on the ground with the butt on the floor so that all she has to do is sit down and slide her legs into them. And it takes so long. She is so bad at it, and it would be so much easier for me to say, like, just lay there and let me do it, right? But we go through this nightly struggle of like me watching her like try and figure out how to get one leg in each pant, right? Like not both in one or not like, I don't know, like the, the number of ways that she can mess up pants is mind boggling to me. And then like she still can't, I have a big head and my kids inherited that. And so she can't get her pajama top over her head, so I will put it on her head, and then it takes her another five minutes to get her arms in the sleeves. Why don't I just do it for her, right? Why don't I just dress her? Because, like, she needs to be able to do it on her own, not for convenience, right, but because I love her, and I want her to learn this skill so that she's not, like, in college asking her roommate, like, hey, can you help me put my pajamas on? Right? Like, how bad would that be? How, how, much, how, how much love would I have to lack to let my daughter go through life without any struggle and, yet, and no growth that comes with it? Right? It's so easy for us to think that God brings suffering and difficulty into our life because he's displeased with us. But Paul says this growth itself is proof that God loves us. God brings us through these struggles not to beat us down or not to punish us, right? Because our sin has been punished on Christ. God brings us through these struggles to grow us, to mature us, to make us more like Christ. So how do you know that your father loves you? He hasn't finished working on you. He's given us his peace. He plants us in his grace, and he has not given up on us. He's rescued us in our weakness, in our sin, and in our alienation from him. And all of this has happened in Christ Jesus, right? He is the one who died and took our sin on himself. He is the one who was raised and gave his life to us, his goodness to us. He is the one who won for us peace. He is the one who ushers us into grace. And he is the one who walks with us by his spirit as we walk in this life through our sufferings. We know our Father loves us because he has given us Christ. And in Christ, he's given us all things. Right? The greatest conceivable gift for the least worthy recipients of it. So my question for you tonight is if you have all things in Christ, why are you trying to do it yourself? Rest. Come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Let's pray.